everyone. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from the blog Unpickled, where I have been telling my story over seven years since my very first day of sobriety. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your story here. And on the show today is Kelly Kidley, a psychotherapist and a woman in recovery who's committed to making a difference. Kelly's mission is to break the silence and stigma of mental health and addiction and to provide hope for those who struggle. She believes passionately that anybody could benefit from at least one year of psychotherapy because it would help us all to be more gentle with ourselves and empathetic with one another. Kelly shows her scars so that others can heal. Kelly Kitley, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be on your show today. I'm glad to have you. Isn't it weird to hear someone else read a bio about you? I always feel weird when people tell my story that way. <laughs> oh, yeah, it sounds so much cleaner. Actually. <laughs> well, that's the edited version. You're here to give us the unedited version. So uh, you're, I know you're a busy lady. You have got four children, and you work full-time as a psychotherapist at your own business. Um, and uh, I know you have a lot on the go, and you really have a heart for service and for helping others, so I appreciate you taking the time to sit down for an hour, although maybe you're on the treadmill as we're talking, I'm not sure, and (laughs) (laughs) and telling your story. So I'll I'll just start by asking you to just tell us about yourself and about your story so far. Mm. Well, first, I just want to say it's such a privilege to um, have the opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope, um, and to connect with other women, um, especially uh, what you're doing, Jean, is so important and provides hope for so many people. And certainly, I I think we've um, grown as a, a recovery community of giving people lots of different out- outlets to seek help. And um, I know connecting with other um, sober women has helped me greatly. So um, I'm just so honored to be able to give some of that back. Um, and my story, um, you know, it doesn't sound as clean as that bio, but it certainly um, made me smile because um, today I'm doing exactly what I dreamed of doing and never thought that all the bumps in the road would get me here, but um, I grew up above my parents' bar in Chicago, um, so that probably is telling in and of itself um, as the oldest of five kids and um, was just always surrounded by a drinking culture. Um, I didn't know anybody who didn't drink except somebody who maybe was in recovery, Um, and so at a really young age, it was really normalized for me um, in a way that people connected and gathered and um, shared community and um, bonded. And um, it, it was not that long after I uh, lived in that environment that I decided to take my first drink at the age of 12, um, which resulted in a blackout. Um, and it really scared me, but it was awesome all at the same time. And um, I, knew at a young age that I had a a high um, chance of becoming an alcoholic, having two alcoholic parents, um, one that identifies as alcoholic and in recovery and one that doesn't and is still very active. Um, And 
had a history of, you know, grandparents uh, and uncles and cousins in and out of recovery and um, always was very aware of um, my genetic predisposition. Um, But I played with fire and continued to try to manage and control my drinking for 20 years, which was, um, I was a binge drinker and um, would have these really fun experiences or they felt fun at the time, um, which typically resulted in pretty negative consequences of um, blacking out um, or putting myself in really dangerous situations. Um, And mostly the turmoil that I felt the next day of just hating myself and writing off drinking forever um, and being able to put plans in place to try to manage and control my drinking. Um, I'd give it up for 40 days of Lent or I'd sign up for a marathon and say I wouldn't drink during training. Um, And I was able to be successful in holding out those promises um, that I made to myself, but white knuckling it. I mean, really, really just showing up at things and being angry and bitter that I wasn't drinking. And, um, you know, with four kids, um, the progression hit really fast and um, became really clear to me um, that I had crossed over into really problematic drinking. Um, I did my graduate studies in addiction and you know, thought that I could think my way out of becoming an alcoholic if I just had, you know, the right information or the right formula, um, I'd be able to figure it out. And, you know, I did all these experiments, like I'll just drink beer for the month of May, or, um, you know, I tried moderation management, I'll drink seven drinks a week, but not have more than two at one time. And um, I certainly identified with once I started drinking, I wouldn't be able to stop um, and was off to the races. Um, And so, you know, I had this moment in my kitchen with my then uh, seven, five, three and one year old uh, pouring a glass of wine um, and thinking, how the heck am I going to be able to drive these kids to uh, different activities? once they're old enough to start socializing and being involved in things because I just couldn't imagine not drinking after work. Um, And my husband is an actor. And um, as you mentioned, I'm a psychotherapist. And so we've created a schedule where he's on in the mornings and I'm on in quotes as a parent at night. Um, And so I was oftentimes parenting alone and the way to get through the monotony for me was to start, having a glass of wine as soon as I changed my clothes um, and then I'd finish a bottle of wine by the time I passed out at bedtime. Um, And the hangovers and the the self-loathing and the self-hatred just became worse. And, um, you know, I was very high functioning. Um, It didn't have real um, consequences in terms of what I thought an alcoholic was of, you know, losing my job, losing my family to me, like my career was soaring and I had this great family life and had done a lot of my own therapy and never really addressing the substance abuse component. 
Um, and a girlfriend of mine who I grew up with since the age of 14 had gotten sober two months before me. And I watched her right in front of me when my drinking was at its all-time um, high. And uh, I desperately wanted the peace that I just saw that she had. Um, and one day after a workout class on a Sunday morning, we were leaving and she had known that I had struggled with my drinking on and off um, most of our 20 year relationship. And it started raining and she said, um, you know, how's your drinking going? And I just burst into tears and I said, it's horrible and I hate myself and I just wish I could give it up. And she said, well, why don't you come to a women's meeting with me? Can you, can you maybe try not to drink until Wednesday? And I was like, no, I have all these bottles of wine open in my in my fridge and I have to drink those before I decide to stop drinking. And she's like, or you could pour them out. Um, and so it was a total spiritual experience that we had and that encounter in that moment that um, I didn't know how I would ever stop drinking. I didn't know if I would ever stop drinking, but her kind of reaching her hand out and saying, come with me, try this out, see if you like it. You don't have to do it. Um, but see if you connect or if any of it speaks to you and, um, went home, poured out all the wine, told my husband I was going to a meeting a couple of days later and she greeted me at the door of the meeting and I sobbed the entire time because I related to everything in that room. Um, and I celebrated five years of sobriety on March 10th of this year. Ah, oh, Congratulations. I can only imagine the relief. I mean, I think we all have had that moment of relief where we are among kindred spirits who are telling our story and the secret that we've been guarding with our whole life is suddenly, you know, just the power of it is taken away and you feel safe for the first time. I have a lump in my throat Mm -hmm. thinking about how that must have been for you. Relief. I mean, you're at that word just resonates with me so much and free and peaceful. I mean, the first year was so hard. <laughs> I don't want to paint the picture like, you know, oh, I decided to stop drinking and it was the best experience of my life. No, it was so hard that first year and needing lots of support and being so vulnerable. Um, but literally feeling like the monkey was off my back. You know, my most peaceful times in life were the four times I was pregnant. Um, Because as soon as I was pregnant, I didn't even have to think about drinking. It it was, no, you don't drink during pregnancy. And, you know, I would have my first drink probably six weeks postpartum. And um, and so that was, I, I would remember that so clearly that it was like, Oh, I feel so peaceful. Alcohol isn't in the equation. Um, And then I would remember that anxiety creeping back in when I try to introduce it um, after I had a child. Now, you have a complicated relationship with your dad to start with. And seeing that the family business is a a series of bars and restaurants, I assume that um, you may have been met with a certain amount of resistance to the idea of being sober in a family whose livelihood is is alcohol. How did that play out for you? Well, um, you know, my memory of um, certainly growing up in the bar and restaurant business was my norm. So it didn't seem um, abnormal to me. 
Um, but there was a significant shift um, as I was getting ready to go to college where my mom got sober. And um, I just saw the way that my dad put her down and, and um, disconnected with her because such a huge part of their relationship was around alcohol. And so, um, you know, she kind of kept her sobriety a secret um, and really, you know, is protective of that to this day, Um, you know, I think 20 years sober. Um, And she, the way that was modeled for me was she made a decision to stop drinking and she never picked up a drink again, has never been to an AA meeting. Uh, She did go with me, actually, to her first AA meeting when I got sober, Um, but says that God is her sponsor. And so I tried that for a really long time. Like, I'm just going to stop drinking. Um, but that didn't work. Um, and I remember when I told my dad that I had stopped drinking, um, he said to me, I couldn't raise five kids drunk. I don't know how the hell you're going to do it sober. Um, and I kind of thought the same thing. Cause I thought, you know, drinking as a parent kind of made parenting easier. Um, but now you know, I look back and I'm like, how the heck did I raise these little kids like preoccupied and anxious? And, um, you know, sometimes I kind of wish I had a redo of feeling like, gosh, being a sober mom to an infant, I would imagine would be very different than what I experienced with, which felt very overwhelming and chaotic and, you know, hormonally and postpartum anxiety and, and, and panic played a part in that too. But, um, you know, I'm just glad that I, I can be a sober mom today to my kids who are um, 11, 9, 7, and 5. So it's fantastic to be able to be so present in the moment. I think that's probably one of the biggest reliefs of living without alcohol is it just lets you be present in the moment. And as a parent, that's what your kids need from you, don't you find? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we live in a chaotic world and You know, certainly, as you mentioned, you know, having multiple children and working full time, I mean, there are a lot of pressures. And um, I used alcohol to manage um, those pressures, and um, it just made things so much more chaotic in my head. Um, So that presence of removing the obsession of alcohol leaves so much room for other things in my head and um, in the time that I have on a daily basis. You had mentioned that um, the program worked for you. You had tried to do it on your own, and in the, the end, a 12-step program was sort of exactly what you needed. What was it about that, do you think, that that was really supportive of recovery for you? I mean, aside from the obvious, program <laughs> 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 it works. <laughs> and it helps millions of people change their lives. But what, what were sure. you trying to do? I mean, you're an expert on helping others. So um, <laughs> what, yeah. what did you find there in the rooms that, that made a difference for you? Uh. Well, I went to my first uh, meeting when I was 21 after a really bad uh, weekend bender, and I was the only woman, I was the only person my age, and I was the only Caucasian person in the room. And so when I walked into that, I didn't see anybody who looked like me, um, you know, representing uh, several things that I identified as. So I immediately was like, okay, you're definitely not an alcoholic. Like, get out of here. You just need to 
I don't know, manage, manage better. Or that was just a one, one off incident. Um, even though I had had, you know, 20 subsequent incidences after that. But, um, for me at that time, it was, you know, and it was my, my first meeting when I was ready to get sober was women. And so it was women who were moms. It was, uh, working professionals. It was people, my age, there were people from my neighborhood. Um, you know, it was amazing. My second meeting, I saw my, my, uh, church priest at the meeting, my son's baseball coach, like there was just a, a connection that helped me not feel so alone. And throughout my journey of my struggle with alcohol, I always tried to hide my feelings about how uncomfortable I was with how much I drank or how I drank or how I acted when I drank. And so the connection for me was like huge. And and I needed people living similar lives as I did to show me this is how you live a life without alcohol. Because even today, you know, majority of the people in my life drink um, outside of the community I've created in sobriety. What's ironic about the story is that, you know, you went to that first meeting seeking connections and you sort of allowed your defenses to prevent you from seeing whatever similarities might have been there. Um, because I feel like if you walked into that same meeting today, you probably mm-hmm. would be able to find connection with, you know, even despite gender, despite socioeconomic differences, even despite the level of bottom, I think as we sort of mature and recover, we start to hear ourselves in all different kinds of stories. But when at the beginning, we really almost need to see ourselves in other people more easily in order to make that connection. Thank you for that. Absolutely. I prefer the meetings that are more um, diverse at this stage. Um, but in the beginning, you know, I, I, I needed somebody that represented, you know, something that I wanted or that I, I visually connected with. And now, as you know, you know, there's, I can talk to anybody who has struggled with addiction um, and find some commonality no matter where we come from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is really the beauty, I think, of recovery. Um, it's just the the way that it brings us together as humans um, and takes down our defenses. Like, I really feel like when we're in addiction, we're just isolated and protecting ourselves and trying to remain different and feel like I'm different. That's why I do this, you know, and, mm-hmm. and recovery is about taking away all those stripping all that away and being vulnerable and, and feeling safe in our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you've really, you've really captured that well. Um, I have a question for you, though. You kind of said that you were high functioning and that you didn't have any terrible consequences, but having read your story um, and being a binge drinker, you know, binge drinkers tend to have a little more trouble hiding it than uh, people that are, well, I, I called myself unpickled in my blog because I was just quietly pickling myself and nobody really noticed it. But I feel like binge <laughs> drinkers have a harder time flying below the radar. Um, you did have some pretty spectacular consequences, did you not? <laughs> sure, I, I sure did. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and 
I think for me, I identified more with the emotional consequences um, that, yeah, the bin, you know, I'm pretty uninhibited sober. And so <laughs> add alcohol to that. Um, and it's a train wreck. You know, it's, you know, I love to dance sober. So give me alcohol. And it's like 10 times that. Um, and, you know, I, I did talk about a story in, in, my autobiography myself about leaving a bar as a mom with three kids. They weren't with me. They were at home with their dad, but blacking out, not knowing how I got home, you know, was in the backseat of a a car of somebody who I thought was a cab driver. um, And, you know, panicking when I came to, because I didn't know what happened um, leaving that bar that night. Um, That's a pretty significant consequence. Um, And other things like, you know, in my early 20s, urinating in the street after a marathon and and getting a ticket for um, public intoxication and needing to do service work with um, (laughs) drug dealers and people who had been incarcerated. I'd say that's a pretty big consequence as well. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there there are several consequences. and I guess, you know, even myself minimizing that a little bit, you know, there's like, oh, but I never got a DUI or, you know, I, when the, the book was released, um, you know, there are some clients who have read it and some who haven't. But um, even, you know, breaking that stigma of what an alcoholic is, so one of my clients had said, so were you like drunk in our sessions? Um, you know, insinuating that that is what an alcoholic is, is somebody who wakes up in the morning and drinks until they pass out at night. Um, and gratefully I was not drunk in those sessions. My drinking typically didn't start, um, until happy hour, but, um, you know, that's still significant. You know, I certainly was hung over for a lot of those sessions. And I think that's actually why it's nice to talk about some of the different ways that alcohol addiction can play out for people because, people do have one idea in their mind of what that looks like. And when they realize that maybe for some people it is day long use, you know, just to ward off the mm-hmm. shakes for other people, it can be episodic binges for some people. It can be, you know, numbing uh, every evening. And it, there's just, there's just so many different ways. Um, and it, it really is as individual as each person. And, it, all of us have the capacity to take it to any degree, um, but we all find our, our way to stop at different points. I feel like the more we talk about it, the more we help other people because it, with people when have one idea in their mind of what problematic drinking looks like, it can make it very uh, easy to give yourself a pass because you can always say, well, I'm not this or I'm not that or mm-hmm. it's bad. And um, so I'm really grateful for, for everyone who tells their story and sort of reminds us that there is no one way that this can can look. Um, you said you did your uh, grad studies on addiction, which I just have to smile at that. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that disconnect. <laughs> because here's, here's the thing. I'm, I, as I, as I um, talk to people in recovery, I'm really struck how many um, people who are drawn into sort of uh, caregiving kind of roles or um, the, the caregiving community struggle with alcohol themselves and even study it academically and, I, and help others with their problems, but, you know, 
aren't immune to it themselves. And what I wonder is, like, having studied so much and being very learned in the field as you are and still struggling with it yourself, what does that tell us? Does that tell us that there's, like, is there a blind spot in, in the science or in the academia when it comes to addiction and recovery? Um, is there something that, that the study of it is missing? Or is it just the mm. human ability to deflect? Oh, such a great question. Um, you know, I can speak from my experience and what drew me to it initially doing a, an internship at an intensive outpatient treatment center. Um, you know, was it, I was so enamored by people who did decide to give up alcohol and live sober lives. lives. And, you know, my, my uncle, my mom's brother, um, has been in recovery for decades, and I really saw his life be transformed. And so I was drawn to that, and, and I didn't look, even though I knew the, the diagnostic criteria for substance abuse or um, sub, uh, dependence disorder, um, I still didn't feel like I fit the mold. And so I identified my drinking as a coping mechanism for some trauma and for some anxiety, but I thought that that was um, secondary or not as prevalent as the people that I was working with. And so I think the way that I chose to look at it and deflect what was going on in my own life and normalizing it in my brain as, well, I'm a college student and this is what college students do and this is okay at this time in your life. But if you're, you know, in your 30s and you're still doing this, then that's problematic. Um, and those were all the people that I was treating in the intensive outpatient program. You know, their marriages were on the line and they were at risk of losing their job or risk of going to jail. And so I was like, oh, those are the alcoholics, not me. Um, so mm-hmm. I differentiated. Even though so I knew, really, even though I knew the the uh, clinical <laughs> background, was there some voice inside of you though that was just waving that flag and saying something isn't right? Oh sure, I mean there was part of me that felt like a hypocrite when I would show up there on a Monday after being out, you know, and I worked at my parents' bar to pay for college. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that was my weekend. I mean, how, how dichotomous <laughs> I'm doing intensive outpatient internship in graduate school and working at my parents' bar on the weekends to pay for my, my studies. It's crazy making. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm just struck by, um, uh, the father daughter relationship here, because I mean, here your dad is um, employing you through college to help you go to college, but at the same time helping you to study what a, a, maybe a proud, you know, stubborn man might say is sort of undermining his life's work in a way. Like, did you have discord around that at all? You know, my relationship with my dad and, and di- difficult to say the least, um, you know, and I still kind of get choked up even though. I have done so much work around this um, relationship and, and my recovery and, you know, have more of a distance from him, the healthier I've gotten. Um, but it really, you know, my connection to the bar was my only connection to him. And so, 
you know, I paid for college in cash that, you know, he, he really was not involved. I don't even think he knew what classes I took. Um, I mean, he knew that I was studying to be a psychotherapist and would undermine that all the time. Um, and had said, I actually, you know, was doing, I was a therapist at the bar, you know, people would come up, come to sit at the bar and tell me their problems. Um, and, you know, jokes and said, that's where I got my first training. Um, but my connection to the bar was really the only way that I could stay connected to him. And once I stopped working at the bar, that relationship very rapidly changed because I, I wasn't engaged in that life anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And have you ever talked to your dad about your sobriety? Does he, is that a tender subject with him as well? Um, you know, my sister got married in Miami um, uh, last year and that was the first time our, one of the first, one of the only times my entire family has been together. Um, it's just, he offered me a drink. That's the only time it came up. Um, <laughs> that says a so, lot in itself, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. So um, I told, I said, you know, I'm good, but, but thanks. <laughs> Kelly, a large part of your story revolves around trauma, um, sexual trauma and, and um, some pretty difficult childhood experiences. Um, that were tough to process and and that you carried uh, on your little shoulders by yourself. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, What perspective has has your recovery given you on that and and what tools are you using now to help you cope with those things? Hmm. Well, you know, I had a lot of really reparative experiences in my own therapy um, around, you know, being in relationship with therapists that were female mothering type, um, dynamic. Um, and, you know, in my sobriety, really being able to understand that my parents did the best that they could with the tools that they were given. And my dad comes from such a, um, dysfunctional background and really raised himself and, you know, didn't have a mom that was present. His own dad owned the bar that my dad eventually ended up buying. And, um, and you know, so I always had really high expectations for my parents, um, although some people would say they were really basic expectations that weren't being met. Um, but I think now I have, and especially as a, a mother, um, who, you know, has done a lot of the work and still really struggles with just what a tough job it is. Um, I couldn't imagine doing what I do now as a mom without any of the insight or recovery work that I've done. Um, and a lot of it is it, when you, you ask me about tools, you know, a lot of it is um, finding you know, my sponsor is like a mother figure to me. And so really finding kind of reparative relationships that act as some of the parental um, relationships that I longed for and didn't get. And and some of that is just an emotional availability. 
Um, you, you were the victim of a, a random violent attack um, walking home one night, and, um, and that definitely played a role in, in, um, uh, in your need to not, need to cope. Um, I feel like there were so many, so many contrib- contrib- uh, contributors to, um, to what unfolded as your addiction. I mean, there was the physical genetics and as you say, like being raised above a bar in a, in a drinking family and, um, some childhood experiences and some negative, uh, as you say, deficiencies, not so much anything intentionally your parents did, but just, just their own limitations. And, and then to have on top of it, just some of these really just bad luck things, like, like a violent attack uh, contributing to, to things. So um, you had a lot, you were up against a lot, I guess is what I'm saying. And, um, uh, and, when I see someone like binge drinking, I I wonder sometimes if it's almost like the pain is like exploding like a pimple or something, you know? Like mm. I can I can carry all this so far, but then I just gotta I gotta mm. uh, dump it, you know? And so, yeah. how do you dump it now? What's your relief now from some of these things, or have you learned to lighten the burden a little bit? Um, I think it's both. Um, you know, I, for me, physical activity is huge. Um, and, and specifically, um, spinning classes and, um, that really was something that helped me in my sobriety and I had gotten certified to teach spinning classes. For me, that felt like a, a natural high and also a purge of just like a reset button. Um, and so I know when I start kind of coming undone a little bit or feeling irritable, um, you know, getting out and going for a walk or um, getting to a meeting or doing some physical activity or, um, you know, my, my self-care list is um, pretty tight in terms of, you know, things that are my go-to. Um, reach out and ask somebody to grab a cup of coffee or you know, I schedule a massage once a month, and that's really therapeutic for me. Um, but a lot of it is, um, you know, my my relationship with my husband, you know, and he's so rational and so grounded um, that a lot of times he's my voice of reason and can talk me to sanity, <laughs> talk me into sanity. Um, so I'm really lucky to have that because I was ready to walk away from all of it at the height of my drinking. I just really was trying to sabotage that. And he, you know, we met at my parents' bar um, when he was in graduate school and I was in undergrad. And, you know, that model of my parents getting divorced soon after my mom got sober was my biggest fear. Um, and my husband has, you know, it's it's been not easy as no marriage or relationship is, but um, he certainly could have chosen not to, uh, stay along for the ride and he just dug his heels in deeper and um, really supported me through this journey. How has your experience as being a psychotherapist changed before and after recovery? Um, well, I like to think I'm a better therapist sober. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, I'm, I'm somebody who has, who has been in and out of therapy since I was 16 years old. So I was always doing um, some kind of work towards 
you know, bettering myself or understanding my history and really trying to not blend the work that I was doing. Um, actually, you know, this term, a wounded healer is something I really identify with. Um, mm. But, you know, gratefully, I didn't have anybody on my caseload who was um, struggling with substance abuse or, actively sober in like the first six months of my sobriety. Um, but I, I just noticed like there is that presence again. I mean, I don't want to overuse that word, um, but that is the clarity that I have that I can sit with somebody for an hour and just be present um, and remove my, my own anxieties and, perfectionism and, you know, critiquing, you know, I think I was so, I was so hard on myself for, for being the best therapist that, you know, I thought I wanted to be. And some of that meant trying to be perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I let go of that um, and really owned my story rather than feeling like that was like the last piece of what I was hiding um, that, that helped me to releasing that helped me, say like, okay, now I can really be present and let go. You know, it strikes me as ironic that so many people in the healing profession feel like it would undermine their, their ability and expertise if people knew that they struggled or that they were in recovery or that they were sober. When in fact, you know, to me, I feel like it would lend an even greater level of expertise. Um, How do you feel about that? (laughs) Um, Well, I I certainly believe that. And and for a long time, um, you know, even when I was in school, I was like, oh, my gosh, if anybody know, anybody in this room knows that how much therapy I've had, (laughs) I I was nervous that somebody would call my bluff. And I, I feel like now having taught graduate students, I'm like, if anybody is not, ever been in therapy you need to get in therapy now because it's part of this process um that you know even majority of the clients that I worked with didn't know a whole lot about me up until a year ago um and and I still keep very clear boundaries in that professionalism when when I practice but there were many people who you know you can google my name now if somebody refers uh, if their doctor refers them to me and they look me up to find my address or whatever, you know, you can pretty much know my entire story. Um, And there are people who I worked with for years who didn't know a whole lot, who read my book and said, Oh my gosh, my connection to you is so much stronger because I feel like you understand me a little better. Um, So I like to say that I've been in the trenches and um, even though my experience may be different than the person I'm working with, um, I practice what I preach and have my own imaginary toolbox that I use. And I'm happy to share that with anybody else who could benefit from that. So your book is called myself and it's available on Amazon and it came out a year ago, right? So this is, hence you've seen this change in that people can, learn all your, you know, you became much more exposed in that way. Was that terrifying or did it feel like the right thing to do? Or how did you feel, um, you know, on the moment that you released your story into the world? 
Mm. Well, it was mixed. Um, I wanted to write a book my entire life. I'd kept journals since uh, since that first blackout I experienced at age 12. Um, and, and writing was so cathartic and therapeutic for me um, and something that I identified in my own journey was I would go into Barnes and Noble or any bookstore and just find women's stories who had gone through something similar as myself. And I would just dissect that and find um, a relatability or how did they do it? And so um, considering that was so helpful for me, I really wanted to share that, you know, as a kind of pay it forward. Um, so I was super excited. I was, you know, the whole writing process was really intense and, and, um, but really good. Um, but my family really doesn't support, um, not shocking, (laughs) not shocking. Um, you know, the idea of me putting everything out there, um, and, you know, other family members, you know, and my in-laws, you know, I think would prefer that I wasn't as vocal as I am, but, um, you know, reminding myself why I did it and the people who have reached out to me and said how much my story helped them. Um, I'm reminded why I did it. It was for me. Um, and it was also for people who are still struggling and are trying to find some kind of hope or light. Um, and my family, you know, I think it was empowering for me because so much of the things that are written about were very shameful and very, um, you know, I was told when I expressed to my parents what had been going on with the family friend who had sexually abused me was like, okay, well, you're not going to be around this guy anymore. And we're just going to like pretend like it never happened and we'll never talk about it again. And I didn't for 10 years. Um, And that felt really awful. Um, and so to be able to be free of any of that is an amazing miracle. And so, uh, it's, it's been a lot of mixed emotions, but I'm, I'm so glad I did it. And, um, I look forward to more exciting things to come. We just pitched the book um, so that I can work with my husband on a web series. And so we're waiting to find out if that gets picked up or not. Um, so the, the, that version would be called Surviving Myself as opposed to the book Myself. So when you say that your family wasn't supportive, I take it you mean your perhaps siblings and parents, but your husband is supportive, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how, how, I'm curious about just the writing process itself, because you have four children and you work full time. And so like, did you not sleep in order to get this book done or what, what is your writing process like? Mm. Well, it goes in waves. Um, you know, I started writing this book 10 years ago before I got sober. Um, and it was a, a very different book, um, And so I had these initial, like initially when I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to start this process. My husband took, we had two kids at the time and he went to um, visit his family and, you know, gifts. I felt like it was such a gift four days alone in my house to just free write. Um, And that was something that I did. I wrote for 12 hours a day and just, you know, banged it out. Um, and then, you know, worked with a writing coach and, um, wrote different drafts and had friends review it and give feedback. Um, 
But, you know, really the last two years of the process was intense. And I'm a morning person. So I, that was my morning ritual. I'd get up and write like an hour before work. Um, and then I'd carve out time in my day in between clients um, where I could sit in this awesome therapeutic space and write. Um, and then, yeah, the last month was editing and every free minute I had. Um, so I was, you know, I wasn't present. Um, as present as I could have been at home, but um, my kids were super psyched too, uh, even though they don't really know what the book is about other than my my life. um, I think they they felt really excited for me um, as expressed through their words of, you know, feeling proud and their mom's an author and, um, you know, they don't want me to write another book though. (laughs) (laughs) One and done. One and done. Um, you know, one part of your story that is, is sort of subtle, but I think is self-evident is is that you have sort of designed the life that you dreamed of and that your recovery has sort of given you the ability to just make things happen in the way that you want them. And one example of that uh, is serendipitous psychotherapy, your business, but not only that, but your location is really special to you. So tell me about that. <laughs> Um, so at the age of 16, I had a, a, an eating disorder and had come to my mom, um, after a friend threatened to tell on me, um, and told my mom that I was really struggling and, um, her, she's very resourceful, very highly educated, um, you know, wanted to get me the resources, took me to a therapist and a nutritionist and a psychiatrist. And, um, but this was all in secret to my dad. Um, and, you know, my parents had a cash business, so we'd show up at these appointments and, you know, we'd bring cash or my mom would write a check and, um, and she would drive me downtown on Michigan Avenue to see this therapist who was for the first time in my life, I had told about the sexual abuse and who helped me recover from an eating disorder. And, um, before I left for college and terminated with her, I said to myself, someday I too want to be a therapist on Michigan Avenue and had kind of put that in my mind's eye and um, had done a lot of things in between um, and worked in uh, community mental health and um, group practices and um, had that vision. And a year into sobriety, it <laughs> there was an incident at the group practice that I worked with that, you know, the woman I was whose practice I was working for said, you know, there's just something that's really different about you. And I can't put my finger on it. And she didn't know I was sober. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I knew exactly what it was. And um, I had asked for uh, a raise at that point. And she had told me that I was the highest paid social worker in the city of Chicago, and I would never make any more money than I was making there, no matter how positively I thought um, I could will my way into that. And that was all I needed um, to walk away from that situation and say, actually, you know what, I think it's time for me to leave. Um, And so with a leap of faith, I found that office space on Michigan Avenue and um, created this really awesome sacred space where um, I, I, I know people come in and feel, you know, a sense of um, calmness when they enter the room and, um, and we do some really good work in here. I just, I love that because I'm a really big believer that anyone can do anything with six phone calls. Like, 
you just and it, or six emails or six Google searches or something. I mean, we can't all <laughs> go to Mars or be rocket scientists. Yeah. But you know, if you have some dream for yourself, um, I I just love to see people going after it and making it happen because there's really there's really we are our own obstacles in so many ways. So I love that mm. that lifelong dream came to fruition for you and that now you're helping other people. It's amazing. Um, in the last few minutes before we go, um, I just wanted to say, I know your 40th birthday is coming up. So happy 40th <laughs> to you. And um, I know it's, uh, you were saying it's a busy birthday month at your house. So tell us how it is that you are celebrating your 40th birthday. Well, this is a day that I dreamed of for a long time, too. I thought, gosh, by the time I'm 40, I really want to have my stuff together. Um, And, you know, we never always do. But I did. I had this vision of, like, in my 20s, I said I did want to be sober by the time I was 40. And, um, you know, all of these great, awesome achievements um, that are so fulfilling. Um, but not just things that I check off my box, but more of like embracing how good it feels and how con- of a connected, how wonderfully connected my life is. Um, but, you know, going back to achieving goals um, and, and, you know, believing that we can do something in that number that you put out, it only takes six. Um, you know, I'm my own PR person and um, a- another part of, the business aspect is pitching myself to different platforms and promoting the book and having opportunities to get out there and share my experience and my strength and my hope. Um, and the day before I turn 40, I'm flying out to Los Angeles to do a segment on Access Live to educate viewers about um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is this fall. So. I'm super excited to fly by myself, to sleep in my own bed, to be in warm weather for 24 hours. And um, I did take the day off work. I, I return uh, at midnight the night before my birthday. And um, I'm going to exercise and I'm going to get a good meal. And I'm going to spend some time with my husband while the kids are at school and um, then spend the afternoon and evening with them, which is just a reminder of like the daily goodness of my life that there's so many things that, that I have the opportunity, privilege to do um, on a daily basis, but simplicity is the best. I love that you can see how an overnight, almost business trip, you're, you're turning it into a celebration and a, a, an, an exercise in gratitude to um, to be doing all of those things. So that's so wonderful. Um, tell us a little bit more of the message of Sexual Assault Awareness Month here. Sure. So um, Rape Victim Advocates is um, an organization here in Chicago that um, came and met me at the hospital um, after my random act of uh, violence that happened in my early 20s. Um, and I had just had a horrific experience of, you know, it had happened on the streets and I ran to try to get somebody to help me. And there was a lot of victim blaming and the police showed up and had asked if I had been drinking and I had not. And then I asked for a ride to the hospital and they, 
you know, said that they weren't taxi cab drivers. And it just the whole two hours after the horrific experience was kind of classic textbook things that we hear about sometimes that survivors are met with. Um, and I'm sitting in the hospital room waiting for a rape kit um, to be given to me by the doctor and in walks this woman. I don't know who called her. I don't know how she got there. I don't know. I, I can't even remember her name. Um, but she stood next to the, um, my bedside and held my hand and told me that I was safe and that um, I was going to be okay and that there were resources out there for me. And she was a woman from Rape Victim Advocates um, who partner with hospitals and police stations throughout Chicago. And she followed up with me 24 hours later. She linked me with services. I was able to get into a women's support group for uh, survivors, and I was able to get free individual therapy. And she was the most positive experience ever. Um, through, and my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, you know, those two people were like the foundation of my healing process. And, um, I continued to study social work and kind of went on my way and we lived in California for a while. And when I came back, I reached back out to rape victim advocates and, um, started getting involved with advocacy work and, um, was invited to speak at their gala with, uh, Tarana Burke, the Me Too founder in May, um, in April, we just launched a um, survivors project with NBC Chicago News that um, other survivors and I share our story live and um, offer resources um, for people who have been um, assaulted as well as prevention measures. So this month is really busy with going out to colleges and speaking about prevention and um, having different uh, media platforms to engage in as well. So April is my favorite month of the <laughs> entire year for a lot of different reasons. Uh, yeah, it is a time of hope and change. It occurs to me as, as we're just rounding out our hour here that it's possible that some listeners um, might be having a bit of an epiphany listening to you make the connection between sexual assault and recovery and addiction and how all of these things tie together. I feel like when we're in survival mode, even when we're in high functioning addiction mode, mm -hmm. part of the way we survive is by keeping everything separate and in a bento box. Um, so the word that Brene Brown uses for it, and I just think it's, it's so apt because it, it just, I mean, it's how we survive. And it's such a revelation that everything is related and that we, when we heal one thing, we can't, we can't work on one thing without somehow affecting the others. And um, so it occurs to me that there could be someone listening right now that is realizing that some part of their past that they have not permitted themselves to think about could very well be part of what's either playing into their addiction or holding them back in recovery and um, and I realize that this can be a terrifying moment <laughs> as, as well sure. as a, a freeing one. So I guess I would just ask you, what would your words of direction and encouragement be to someone who is, is sort of at that moment of awareness right now? You know, I, I think 
sexual talking about sex in general is uncomfortable for people. Um, so add in sexual assault makes it even that much more uncomfortable um, for some people. And so that was um, something that was hard for me was that I was going to the wrong people um, that I was hoping would give support um, and, and weren't able to. And so as a result of that, I felt worse about it. Um, and so I think being able to pause and finding the right resource, whether that be um, a sexual assault survivors group or sexual abuse survivors group um, or an individual therapist, I think being able to share that experience with somebody in a really safe environment that is non-judgmental um, can make all the difference. And so I, I typically suggest that people seek some kind of therapeutic intervention um, to address some of this um, initially to, to um, be able to process it appropriately. Because it can feel very overwhelming and flooding and not, not knowing what to do with it. Well, I want to thank you so much for your wise words and your, your big, kind heart. Um, you have such a big heart, but you feel others' feelings and you, um, and you make your life about healing them. So I, I really applaud you for that and for your bravery to put yourself out there despite the discomforts that it involves because I really think that it's by telling our stories that we will change this world and, and take down shame and stigma. So thank you for that, Kelly. You're welcome. This was such a pleasure and huge part of my day to help me feel grounded as well. And um, I appreciate everybody who tuned in today as well. Um, tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and, and find your book and find your website. Sure. Um, so my website is www.kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, Kitley, K-I-T-L-E-Y, Dot com, And there is a link on there to Amazon to purchase the book. And there is also contact information on there um, to email me directly. Um, and I can give people resources that, you know, might be more readily available in their own community. Um, and then social media is a great platform as well. Um, I share a lot of articles I contribute to and um, different articles that I have written as well. And um, I have a serendipitous psychotherapy web page on Facebook. And then um, Instagram is uh, Kelly Kitley. Um, so and Twitter and all of those fun things, LinkedIn, I'm I, <laughs> I, You're I everywhere, live man. in the dark ages where, you know, <laughs> I, I really prefer wall phones and, you know, big TVs. But um, somebody suggested when I opened my own business that I should get up with the times and get on social media. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I have. It's been awesome. That's how I found you. I know. I love it. I, I'm the same way. I sometimes want to just crawl in a hole and stay there, but I love the way that it brings us all together and makes the world smaller and, and uh, opens up new opportunities. So I'm, I'm grateful that you and I found each other and that, um, and that our listeners have now found you as well. So thank you for sharing your story today. Absolutely. And I look forward to meeting you in real time sometime soon. 
Yes, and that could very well be at the She Recovers event in L.A., which is in September in 2018. I believe there are still tickets available, so I want to plug that event because uh, Don Nickel and Sharon Strong are two very dear friends of mine, and they just have poured their hearts into these events that are really about connecting our community because our, our, um, we are all virtually connected, but we need sometimes to be in the same physical space and something magical happens when we're all together. So I know 500 mm-hmm. is really just a small sampling of the tens of thousands of women in recovery uh, around the world, but um, it really is a magical event. So I hope to see you there, Kelly, and I hope that some of our listeners will find us there as well. Yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you, and a happy 40th birthday to you, and um, I'm going to spend some time watching your, I'm going to like, uh, what do they call it, I'm going to creep you on the net and, and watch a, a bunch of your videos, because you have some really great TED Talks and interviews online, so listeners, if you want to see Kelly's beautiful smile and to, to give you a visual to go along with her story today, um, visit her website and you'll see lots of videos there. So that's everything for us for today. Uh, If you want to reach Kelly, uh, you can do so through her website or her Facebook page. And as always, you can email me, thebubblehour at gmail.com. And uh, I'll respond to you as quickly as I can. And if you want, I can forward your message on to Kelly as well. So that's it for today. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong you keep it on the side It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you see oh, I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power